Some time ago, I started something in the Daily Bread called the Feel Good Section. There was no reason for any filler that was not to take up space. It was instead as an overflow of things that should be easily discernible to all of us who uh, even have one eye open as to all the good things that are going on around here. And I thought about just what I've seen since just before the evening services and how those might be fitting there, and probably I can't use them now because I'm going to tell you. I told last week about how wonderful it is to be led in prayer by so many just in the public assemblies and, of course, in private, more private settings and how heartfelt and how godly those prayers seem to be. I think we uh, were led tonight in one in Larry King, whose prayers are always so tender-hearted and heartfelt and a great example of what we were talking about. And I'm thankful as I think about families like the Stevens, one of several families who have come to be with us in the last 12 to 18 months. And I'm so grateful that they have already been integrated and uh, it was great to have Lucas lead us in singing tonight. And then I, I thought about the and I, we're losing terminology here, but we're going to call them the true young families, the ones with little children. They uh, got here a little early before Pew Packers. They're going to sing to uh, the residents at the uh, uh, assisted living facility down the street. And they were practicing their songs together. Something you may never have known about unless you got here a little earlier. That's just a sample, just the surface of what is on an ongoing basis going on. One of so many reasons why we should be grateful to be members of the Bear Valley Congregation, and for which I am. I didn't know, my wife didn't know this song. I guess we had groups from Middle Tennessee to come and to sing them with Vacation Bible School growing up in domestic mission work in Georgia. Somewhere along the way, there was a group that came down and introduced us to a song. I don't know that I've heard it sung here much. I just want to be a sheep. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that song, but one of the verses says, I don't want to be a Pharisee. And as it is with a lot of children's and other songs, I suppose, there's about 86 versions out there. That verse, I don't want to be a Pharisee, has actually several endings to it. I don't want to be a Pharisee, one version goes, because they're just not fair, you see. And then there's another version that says, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're living in a heresy. And then one similar to that, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're always in your hair, you see. (laughs) You know, I don't know which version is accurate and what the songwriter wrote originally, but there's some truth in all of them. There was another man who wrote a song. I have never heard this one. His name is Ian Smale, S-M-A-L-E. And he wrote the song... I don't want to be a Pharisee or anyone like that. It's foolish swallowing camels while straining at a gnat. To keep the letter of the law, they forgot the people it was for. Why is it that one would not want to be a Pharisee? Before we answer that question, I believe it's good for us to make a couple of observations by way of introduction And the one that may be the first and most helpful is for us to get an understanding of who the Pharisees are and where they might have come from. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament times, the people of God had already come back into the land of Judah. They used to own that land, but now they no longer did. And there needed to be some way, it was felt, to preserve the law. 
We might look back to the time of the restoration movement and the leadership of the people to uh, preserve the law that was done by Ezra and Nehemiah as the genesis of the Pharisees. They, there was eventually, seemingly from these first efforts by Nehemiah, a group that was preserved that came to be known as the Great Assembly. And the Great Assembly was assembled to preserve the law, to make sure that it wasn't lost. As they had gone away so many times before, as they had gone into idolatry, as they had been in Babylon, there was a great desire that that not happen again, that they forget those very essential elements of the law of Moses. And that great assembly, somewhere along the line, began to be known as the Sanhedrin or the Seventy. The term Pharisee uh, in its meaning was the separated ones. They were also known as the Kassidim. That is, those loyal to God. How ironic it is that those who bore the name loyal to God would be the most bitter enemies and the most resistant to God the Son. That seems to be at least somewhat of a thumbnail sketch and overview of those people. But a second observation that will help us before we get into that text in Matthew chapter 23 is to understand and recognize that the Pharisees had a great many admirable qualities. We owe a lot of debt to Josephus, the historian who told us about what life was like in the first century when Jesus lived. And he wrote just about everything, and he wrote about the Pharisees too. And as he wrote about the Pharisees, he said this about them in part. He said they strictly managed their money and their diet. They relied heavily on the use of reason. They respected the elderly. They believed that men had a free will. They taught the resurrection and they believed in the eternal reward and punishment. And while Josephus may have been a little bit biased, we do see that there were some great qualities. They were the people, the leaders religiously of the common man as compared to the other sects or the other parties that existed at that time. And they encouraged a strict following and obedience of the law. And I want to point out that Jesus never condemned them for their strict attention to being obedient to the law. In fact, Jesus himself gave a great premium and a great stress on the importance of being obedient. Luke records in Luke 6 and verse 46, Jesus saying, And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And in John 14 and verse 15, positively, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And so there were some good qualities about these individuals. So in what ways would we not want to be like a Pharisee? I'd like us to visit Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus gives that very renowned and strong rebuke of this sect of people along with the scribes and see in what ways we don't want to be like them. I want to make three observations in just from what we might call the preamble of this chapter. The first seven verses or so. And the first observation is that I don't want to be like the Pharisees in their seat. In Matthew 23, verse 1 and 2, Jesus addresses the crowd and the disciples saying that the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And the idea is that they have placed themselves in Moses' chair. We began to understand something about that great assembly as it existed in that day and those that would have been among the religious leaders. We come to see that they would have been comprised of the chief priest and the former high priest, 
They would have been the chief priests of the 24 sections or divisions. They would have been the elders. And they would have been the scribes or the lawyers. And it would seem perhaps that there was a good bit of jockeying and uh, politicking and positioning to try to get themselves into those places. While that's not said by Jesus in the text, it's implied that they seem enamored with position and having position. In the very context, in Matthew 23 and verse 6, Jesus says that the, the chief priests and the Pharisees like the seats of honor in the synagogue. Jesus likewise points out their desire for respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And again, those seats of honor. Now this is not to say that if one knew how to handle the law and was respected for that, that they were automatically corrupt. There were those among the Sanhedrin that were honorable. There were those who were experts in the law that could be looked up to, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. There were certainly others who were men of high position and high influence that Jesus would praise and not condemn. What about the nobleman with the sick servant? In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 9, the Bible says he had a high rank. As we look throughout the Gospels in the New Testament, we find those who were in places of importance and that did not corrupted them. I think about something that I remember hearing in school from Abraham Lincoln that goes, if you want to test a man's character, give him power. That's the challenge that we face in not imitating the Pharisees. Sometimes preachers and elders may become arrogant because of the position that they have, and this is destructive. The Bible would warn teachers in James chapter 3 and verse 1 to be very careful about that very position that they would occupy. And there's a charge that's given to preachers to be very careful in the ministry that they fulfill in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 5. And it is true that elders can be tempted in their position of leadership to overreach and to assume too much in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3. And add to that, some may inflate our egos by telling us how able and capable we are and how much that we know. And then we may fancy ourselves as being in a place... That is only rightfully occupied by God. You know it's important for us not to be territorial or drunk with perceived power in any work that we are given to do even in the body of Christ. And this can happen when a person is given a position or is in a work in a congregation. And they may try and use that to give them a position of self-importance. It can happen if we appeal to how long we have been a member of the congregation Or how much we give or how much we have given. Or how skilled we are in a given area. We've got to be very careful, even if those things are true, not to try to seat ourselves. Jesus tells the parable of the wedding guest in Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 7. It says that Jesus was sitting there and he was noticing how that those that were present were trying to take the place of honor. And so Jesus tells a parable, beginning in verse 8 of Luke chapter 14. He says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you might have also been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you begin to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when he who has invited you comes, he may say, friend, move up higher. And then you will have honor in the sight of all those who are seated at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. 
Jesus is exposing an attitude like the Pharisees possessed. It's a matter of pride. And pride is a timeless thing among all people. It's very interesting that when King George III was having his portrait painted by his American painter, Benjamin West, King George asked Benjamin West, what will George Washington do if he prevails in the Revolutionary War? And West said, he will retire to his farm. Upon hearing that, King George III incredulously said, If that's true, then George Washington is the greatest man in the world. Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown in 1783, and George Washington went to his farm. He was coaxed from his farm to attend the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, where he was elected president, and he served two terms. And in 1792, he retired to his farm. He died in 1799, and in that same year, Napoleon Bonaparte seized power and became ruler of France. He was a man who was drunk with power and position, and he once called power his mistress, and he said, I've worked so hard to gain her that I will do nothing to lose her. And of course, you know he had his Waterloo, and later on, years later, stripped of his power and stripped of his position, he lamented, saying, they wanted me to be another George Washington. But you see, his lust and his desire for power and position made the difference. One was humbled and was exalted in the, in the global politics, and the other exalted himself and was abased. How much more is it true in the kingdom of our Lord? That as we try to vaunt ourselves and to seat ourselves in positions that are high, that we'll be humbled. But instead, we ought to humble ourselves. So I don't want to be like the Pharisees. And their desire for seating themselves in a position. But then second, I'd have you notice with me, I don't want to be like the Pharisees in their deceit. Jesus continues, as we look in Matthew 23, 3 and 4, and I appreciate Ben and the great way that he read that tonight. But as you revisit those verses, I want you to notice again the emphasis here. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things... And do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Jesus points out the deceit of these religious leaders in at least two ways. One, he states it. And then second, he illustrates it. First, notice with me that Jesus here reveals their double standard. He says they say things and they do not do them. Now, here in this chapter, Jesus is going to focus on the hypocrisy. And he so much focuses on that that you'll find seven times that Jesus refers to the chief priests and the Pharisees as hypocrites. And notice some of the things that he lines alongside that term, that idea of hypocrisy. In verse 13, you'll notice that Jesus says that they themselves are not entering into the kingdom, but they would prevent others from entering in. Jesus terms that with hypocrisy in verse 13. In verse 14, Jesus says, They say long and pretentious prayers while devouring widows' houses. Verse 14. And then in verse 15, we see it again, where Jesus is pointing out yet something else. He says they worked very hard to convert someone, and when they did, they made them a worse person than they themselves. Later on in verse 23, they minored in the majors, and they majored in the minors. 
And then in verse 25 and verse 27 again, Jesus said they looked righteous, they looked beautiful outward, but inward they were corrupt. And then we see again in verse 29 that Jesus points out and says that they acted pious toward the martyrs that their fathers had killed, but they themselves were going to do worse than their fathers. In all of this, Jesus points out the hypocrisy. It was shameful, but you'll notice that it was born of that double standard. We need that because that's something that all of us can fall prey to. A double standard. Basically, with a double standard, you say, I'll make sure that you're doing what I think that you're supposed to do, all without subjecting myself to the same strictness. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. It's something that we can do very easily in our marriage. We can expect our partner to be perfect and yet want them to accept us just as we are without changing. Parents, it can happen to us as we say to our children, do as I say, not as I do. It can also happen when it comes to matters related to the church. Preachers can preach on involvement and evangelism and proper conduct and things like that and somehow think themselves exempt from the very message that they're preaching to others. Even in the matter of personal offenses, it can happen. If I'm not visited in the hospital, I might be upset. I might be mad. But I myself may have never visited anybody in the hospital. We might find ourselves being, or maybe we don't notice it, but we may be rude. Or we may ignore a brother or sister. But if we feel slighted, then we're very offended. Don't ever let your child get out of line. But if it's mine, then be patient and let's show some charity. Contextually, Jesus is referring to those who say do to others, but do not do themselves. And that double standard was hypocrisy. But then also you'll notice that Jesus calls this deceit differing weights. It's the difference between a heavy burden on the shoulder of someone else and that which even a little finger would not pick up. And so we see this double standard. Either way that you put this, either with the statement or with the illustration... What you have is a problem of hypocrisy. As the New International Version puts it, let's practice what we preach. I don't want to be like the Pharisees in their deceit. But I also don't want to be like the Pharisees in their conceit. As I continue reading in verse 5 through 7, notice what Jesus says. He says, They do all of their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries, and they lengthen the tassel of their garments. They love the places of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbis by men. And essentially, their excessive pride is shown in two ways. Number one, Jesus said they sought the notice of men. They wanted to be noticed by men. That's in verse 5. It was from their deeds all the way down to their duds, down to their clothes even. They wanted to be recognized for the spiritual, godly people that they were projecting themselves to be. You know, Jesus had already handled this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. When he talked about those who did their praying and their fasting and their giving to be seen of men. Jesus says there they have received their reward in full. But I also want you to notice that they showed their excessive pride in another way. And that is in their love of earthly honors. In verse 6 through 10, they wanted special names and they wanted VIP treatment. You know, it's good for us to ask, why do I serve God? Do I serve God for recognition? And it may be that we say, of course not. I don't serve the Lord for a pat on the back. But do we feel insulted if we're not recognized for what we do? 
Do we want to quit if others don't express appreciation for what we do? You know, the Pharisees did a lot of great works. There is no reason for us to doubt the good works of that man who prayed in the temple in Luke chapter 18. His righteous, moral, upright conduct, his self-sacrificing, or his generosity, and yet it didn't do him any good. The question is, would he have done those things if no one had seen them but God? It appears that at least some of those that Jesus addresses here in Matthew 23 would not have done so. I don't want to be like the Pharisees in their conceit. You know, the Pharisees were legalists from the standpoint that they trusted in their own goodness to save them. But their strict attention to obedience was not wrong. It was not their problem. And in fact, their strict attention to obedience itself was not legalism. The New Testament teaches us clearly that we cannot go to heaven without God's grace. But even God's grace teaches us to obey. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. But the Pharisees did not originate the idea of obedience. They simply perverted it. I don't want to be like the Pharisees. And seeking a place or a position to seat myself in such a place. I don't want to be like the Pharisees in having a double standard. One for me that's lower and one for you that's very difficult for you to achieve. And I don't want to be like the Pharisees in being arrogant and seeking the praise of men and having a place of conceit. You know, Jesus summarizes the antidote. What will help us to get a grasp on this in verse 11 and verse 12. He says, the greatest among you will be your servant. You know, those are the great ones in the eyes of God. The silent soldiers, those behind the scenes, whose good works may never see the light of day on this earth, at least not by the masses, but who serve the Lord sincerely from the heart. And he also says in verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, Jesus says, doesn't he, in another place, that if we want to uh, have greatness in the kingdom of God, we've got to humble ourselves, even to the point of being like a child. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I just want to be a sheep. So how do you become a sheep? Our Lord tells us that. Mark 16, and verse 16, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be condemned. Perhaps it is tonight that you realize your need to become a child of God and are ready to obey the gospel. Or it may be that you need to make something known, prayer request, or you may need to be restored as a child of God. If you have either of these needs, won't you come right now as together we stand and sing this song.